You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me for tonight's live stream. I know it's been a minute since I had did a live stream. March was kind of crazy. Um, Monique and I did some traveling and speaking, but trying to get back into the swing of things. And so this is the long-awaited conversation um, about my journey into and eventually out of Reformed theology and Reformed culture. Uh, there was a little bit of delay on the show because the gentleman that I interviewed had to delay it for a month. So that's why the show was postponed. And um, but I do hope that you'll enjoy the interview tonight and our conversation about this journey. And I thought it would be good if we started off by um, maybe giving a little definition uh, for those of you who may not know what Reformed theology is. Since it's right in the title, because I've been titled as no longer Reformed. Uh, sometimes Reformed theology is called Calvinism. Uh, you may have heard it called predestination. Um, that's certainly a major component of the reform framework, although it's not the whole, the whole framework. Here's a short description that I thought was pretty good on the got questions website. Um, often you'll hear the tulip acronym and tulip stands for T stands for total depravity. Man is completely helpless in his sinful state under the wrath of God and in no way can please God. Uh, humans will not naturally seek God unless God graciously prompts him to do so. The U is for unconditional election. God from eternity past has chosen to save uh, a number of sinners who no man can number. And then L is limited atonement, or sometimes this is called particular redemption, where Christ took on the judgment of the sin, not for the whole world, not for everyone on the planet, but just for the elect. Onto himself, I stands for irresistible grace in that in our fallen state, apart from Christ, man uh, will resist God's love and we need a work of grace working in our heart to make us desire God. Um, and then P is perseverance of the saints. Um, God protects his saints from falling away. So that's kind of a little overview. Again, you can go to the God Questions website if Reformed Theology is new for you. Nice little article there um, with a good summary of what it's about. Now, you might be wondering, why is Krista doing a teaching on this topic? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is that recently I was uh, contacted by a major platform that was vetting my content for possible inclusion and distribution on their on their platform. And it was turned down uh, largely because the content creators took issue with me not being reformed. And I, to be honest, I was a little surprised. It's okay. I'm not offended. I'm not, I'm, you know, it's, it's all right. I'm not going to, I'm not trying to shame them. They have every right to put whoever they want on their platform. No problem. But I was a little surprised and yet also not surprised by this surprised in that I thought my content was strong enough theologically to stand on its own in spite of me not being reformed, I really try to put forward like a robust case for the Christian faith and for valuing history and the life of the mind and that kind of thing. And I, I try to be so careful and biblically faithful in my research and presentation. 
So that was a little su surprising to me, but that's okay. It's again, that's, that's their right. It's no problem. I don't have an offense about it. Um, but I was not surprised in the sense that this decision is somewhat consistent with what I have experienced for over 20 years in reformed culture. And I'll explain more of what I mean by that in a, in a few minutes here. Um, the second reason that I'm covering this content and this topic is because I do get a fair number of private messages to me inquiring about it. And I don't like to respond to all these messages. I just don't have time. So I just thought I would make a video about it. That way I can direct people to the video. And um, but what's interesting to me is that ever since I posted the little Facebook event that I was doing this topic and announced the that I was doing the stream, even more people started messaging me and many of them expressed private concerns about some things that they see in reformed culture. Um, and some people contacted me that have been significantly injured by reformed culture. So maybe something about my story will be of some help. Maybe it will help bring some sense to, to your experience. If that's you, some people may write me hate mail afterwards. That's okay. Um, but my hope is that this will just um, kind of answer this question and maybe um, give you some something, some things to think about. Maybe not, you know, whatever is in that is fine. So let's get into this. I want to introduce you to Pastor Brad Saab. He is the lead pastor at One Missoula Church in Missoula, Montana. And we'll see you in a few minutes. I am excited to be here with Pastor Brad Saab. He is laboring for the gospel up in Missoula, Montana. Welcome, Pastor Brad. Thank you so much for having me, Krista. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. I'm excited to talk to you. Now, we don't know each other. We just we just connected on email. I saw you on another podcast, uh, found your story interesting, really resonated with a lot of parts of my story. Just hoping yeah. we can kind of maybe it'll be less like an interview, more like a conversation as sure. we sort of get to know each other and um, share a little bit about both of our journeys, both into uh, reformed theology. And I even make a differentiation between reformed theology and reformed culture, which maybe we can get into later, but, sure. um, and then out of that framework. So, um, I would be curious, you know, what factors, uh, led you down the path of reformed theology? Like where were you in your Christian walk at that time? Sure. So the thesis statement would be what led me into it was, and I didn't even know that it was reformed or predestinarian or Calvinistic, whatever, uh, kind of whatever moniker you want to use there. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I was in church world. I was serving in vocational ministry and concerned about what I saw was an absence of dealing with hard issues or culturally offensive issues or things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, so I started to seek out people who were dialoguing about these things, discussing these things, preaching on these things. Uh, and I came across people like John Piper and Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler. And these guys were saying things that I knew you were not allowed to say. Um, and it's for, for me, and I want to be just super careful. I loved the people that I was laboring with. I still do yeah. to this day. 
Um, and so I'm not meaning to be disparaging in any way, shape or form. This was kind of a personal conviction of, man, uh, I'm very concerned for people's souls and the things that we're not saying. Right. Uh, very concerned for, um, at that time, I think just the, the harder teachings on ethics and morals and the people who were saying those things, uh, I didn't know because I didn't have the buckets. I didn't have the categories. I didn't have the labels. I just knew I was probably uh, five or six years old as a as a Christ pursuer at that point. Now, was that, this in uh, the early 2000s, mid 2000s? When, when it was, was mid 2000s. It okay. was really kind of uh, I went to I, I was engaged with passion ministries. Uh, I was in college ministry, serving in collegiate ministries at the University of Florida and um got engaged in passion where i got exposed to john piper and bodie bacham even though uh, okay. it was piper really the one piper got up at passion one day and i was there in memphis and uh i remember he spoke and i didn't i was one year old as a as a believer and i was like i have no idea what that guy just said but that was the most intelligent thing i've ever heard in my <laughs> life and uh from that point on like it kind of set the the tone uh, and a, a hunger for an intellectual faith and a uncompromising faith. I love and how you I say that. Yeah. The uncompromising component of it. I think that resonates with me too. Uh, my journey, I I'm sure I'm significantly older than you, uh, was kind of started back in the early to mid nineties. Actually, yeah. I was just starting in seminary and, uh, my husband and I started attending a class with, a gentleman that I think the world of, and he's a colleague and he's a friend. Uh, my friend, Kenneth Samples, he is a, um, a man of God. I've had the honor and privilege of working with him for over two decades and I know his integrity and, but he was really the person who introduced us to reformed theology. And I found, I did some digging today in my, my bookshelves. I found my old copy of uh, R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God, yeah. from that I bought in about 1993 or 94. And this was really the book that was influential for me. Ken uh, recommended this book and I read it. And that was really kind of a pivotal point for me of like, yeah, I want to, even though my husband and I both grew up in the church, we both seem to have like this longing for something more, something deeper. And I, I can resonate with that of, just like, yeah. you know, what else is there? And uh, reading Chosen by God from, by R.C. Sproul for me, and I can't remember, Bob, if you read this book or not, but it 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 sent me down a path and us collectively of, of just exploring reformed ideas and um, deep into um, those churches here in in Southern California. And for the, the five people that are watching this stream who don't know what Reformed theology is, uh, let's give a little a little um, flashing out of that of that construct for people that uh, maybe we can give a few key points and and some of its key thinkers. Uh, how do you explain what Reformed theology is to people or how did you? Sure. So layman's terms is that we are all born totally depraved and so depraved and dead in spirit that God has to make us alive before we can um, respond to his gospel invitation. So, uh, you know, I would use the analogy of, of, you know, some people would say, you know, Jesus, you were drowning on the surface and Jesus saves you by throwing you a lifesaver and you grab a hold of it. 
um, and he tows you into the boat, right? That's kind of the general understanding of salvation. Well, uh, the idea of total depravity and, and being born dead in your sins, as in spiritually dead, would be that you're actually not on the surface drowning. You're, you know, a mile below the ocean, completely dead. You've been dead always. And so Jesus has to make you alive before you can ever reach out and grab the lifesaver. And so, um, and so there's that you're born totally depraved, totally spiritually dead. Um, and, and God chooses before the foundations of the world to take some language out of context out of Ephesians one, uh, who he is going to make alive. And so there's however many billion people on the planet right now, 7 billion, I guess is what we're being told. And so 7 billion people on the planet and God has chosen, uh, who he is going to make alive, um, and, uh, able to respond to his gospel invitation to his gospel call. And so that's generally how I would get there. Uh, and then sometimes kind of depending on how the conversation was going, I would get into limited atonement where Jesus only died for those who would, uh, who he had chosen before the foundation of the world to regenerate so that they could in turn, um, respond and receive the gospel message. Yeah. And I think that that limited atonement piece is one that, you know, honestly, a lot of people struggle with, you know, wait, I thought Jesus died for everybody. And, yeah. and you, you, as a reformed person, that's often, you know, a point of wrestling for many people when they're coming into the, the, the journey of that framework is re and re understanding or relearning the atonement through the lens of, well, Jesus only died for the elect. He only died for those who were predestined. I remember one troubling chapter in Sproul's book uh, that was really tough for me when I was reading it for the first time was the, the double predestination. The, this idea that, sure. you know, not only has God predestined some for, for um, salvation, but then that, that means that, implicitly he's also passing over others uh and effectively damning them for eternity and that is another feature of the, of the framework that you really have to wrestle with were you presbyterian were you a reformed baptist how would you characterize which stream of reformed thought you you most w were in uh, where I landed would have been Reformed Baptistic. So okay. representatives would be John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Mark Driscoll, uh, Matt Chandler, um, D.A. Carson. Those were kind of my go-to pastors, theologians, and, and exegetes. I think for me, uh, we, we kind of went in all the streams. Uh, yeah. For a while, we uh, attended a United Reformed Church uh, for a while. Um we were attended a couple of Reformed Baptist churches for a while. A lot of people don't understand that, like Reformed and Presbyterian, there's Reformed Baptists, there's a lot of Southern Baptists that lean Calvinistically. Mm -hmm. They're all kind of in a similar stream, but but they do have their differences. Um, Absolutely, but um, they'll unite around uh, about around the predestinarian understanding. Presbyterians, you know, they're they're gonna want to baptize their babies. Whereas I don't know from my husband and I, we still had enough Baptists left in us that that was always a, a, a tougher issue. Is that, 
anything that you ever wrestled with when you were reformed? That was always off the table for me. Um, that was the baptism issue. Uh, you know, I, I really started pursuing Christ my uh, senior year of high school, and it was in a kind of a closet Baptist church. And I've always, I was always in Southern Baptist churches um, un, until, you know, we started this church, which is completely non-denominational. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, the baptism issue was interesting for me because I would read R.C. Sproul and I would read, um, uh, who is it, Tim Keller, you know, the, the Presbyterians, you know, I had to read Presbyterians and appreciate the insight that they would bring and things of that nature, but I was not on board with their polity, uh, nor was I on board with uh, the, the baptizing uh, people who couldn't believe and repent. Yeah. First, so the, the whole question of baptizing babies, like, you know, my husband and I really wanted to get there, but it was, that was a definitely a, a tougher road for us. Yeah. Um, when we attended um, reformed churches who did engage in, baby baptism, they would say that people like you weren't real reformed people. You know, they would say that reformed Baptists, you don't, you're just only interested in the predestination part of it. You don't, you don't go far enough. I I came across a good bit of that as well, that culture. And, you know, actually having, I guess I did an interview with Leighton at at one point, spoke at a church here in Montana and then did an interview uh, with Leighton Flowers and, uh, you know, all of the kind of the normal uh, pushback, backlash, backlash came in. Well, you didn't understand Reformed theology. You weren't really Reformed. Okay, that's fine. You know, I, uh, I, I understand, you know, that people have their understandings of things. Yeah. So. so what were some one or two passages that really kind of were pivotal for you in your journey into Reformed the reform framework that you're like, man, when I read this passage, I was sort of never the same, or I, I just, this was so compelling for me. I know what those are for me, but I'd love to hear that from you. Sure. Well, the one that did it, did it for me was John six. It was John six, 44 and 65. No one can come to me unless the father draws him. I believe that's right. Right. Um, And so I was preaching through, I was in seminary. I was taking a gospel of John class and I was a youth, uh, pastor at the time in North Carolina, and I was preaching verse by verse through John, and hit uh, hit John one, right, and um, hit uh, John three, and I made it past those two without becoming reformed. But then I hit John six, and I hit John six forty four and sixty five, and I was like, I can't argue with that, right? The only way that you can come to Christ is if the Father draws you. That's not free will, therefore. I guess I'm reformed and right. I kind of landed there. And I remember I, I preached that uh, to, you know, whatever, 150 middle and high school kids on a Wednesday night, got some emails from parents. And I was like, you tell me, what would you do with these passages? And all I ever got back was, man, I need to investigate that. Okay. I'm like, I know I'm there. Um, and I had wrestled with, you know, the Romans eight, eight, and nine, when I was early in seminary, I was in seminary out in Texas for a year and uh, going through New Testament and just, you know, reading, reading through the scriptures. And I was, I was briefly reformed and then I wasn't reformed again. And then when it came time to actually start preaching and teaching later in life, so whatever that was, oh, three or four years later, um, it was John 6 that kind of sealed it for me. And I was like, 
that's it. John six was definitely, you know, a, a big issue for me too. Uh, I think for me, what kind of sealed it was Romans nine, you know, the idea of before Jacob or Esau had done anything good or bad, uh, that Jacob, I have loved Esau. I have hated, I, yeah. I just couldn't get past that. And, and that, you know, who are you as, as, as the, the pot to talk back to the, to the potter, you know, what if he's created you for destruction? Um, those were passages that I just couldn't get past. And I thought, well, I've, I've got to, I guess I'm reformed. I, I have to bend the knee to, to this, to this framework because that was the framework that was available. Um, it was organized. It was put into a book that I could understand. And that seemed to be the, the alternative. But I think that more equally, I don't want to say more than, but equally commensurate with that is what I saw from reformed Christians was a seriousness about their faith. Like they took the Bible very seriously and mm-hmm. I really appreciated that, that they were willing to take a stand for scripture. I'm wondering if, if that um, stood out to you as well. Absolutely. Uh, and that's still one of the things, you know, I still consult, uh, you know, I, I read outside of my tribe now, but probably my principal resources, my primary resources that I consult for after doing my own study and exegesis and so on um, are almost always reformed. I'm like, all right, what's this crowd? Because of their devotion to scripture, because of their um, reverence for the word of God and really kind of it's that sola scriptura mindset that that drives into that. And so I loved the devotion to the Bible. Um, I, I regularly shied away from the more experiential understandings of God. Uh, even people that are like, man, God spoke to me in prayer. I was like, okay, Yes. Okay. I can see that in the scriptures, but what really was the anchor for me and what was the, uh, really the arbiter for me was scripture. And so that always, uh, to this day is what I love about the, the reform tribe. I think that where I had to get to, and I'm wondering if you can relate to this is, well, you know, God's the creator. He's just, he is who he is. He sets the rules and I must bow to that. And even though this seems to me to be like kind of even somewhat not totally supported in scripture or how I was brought up, or even it seems a little cruel to me, if I'm going to go all the way with God and if I'm going to really take the Bible seriously, this is what I have to believe. Um, is Were any of those did you have any parallel thoughts like that at any point? There were similar thoughts. Um, I think your what you just articulated was far more compassionate than I was. Okay. Um, it was it was really it was uh, you know I, I really held and had worked out the idea that uh, you know people on their own left to their own desires is God's not damning anybody. People are choosing to be damned yes. in, in your natural state. Uh, your Ephesians 2, by nature, child of wrath, you will always choose what Adam and Eve chose, which is to be your own God or to act as your own God, at least a uh, lawgiver and judge. And um, 
So yeah, but I I I did hold that God implicitly, like if you're not electing these people before the foundation of the world to regenerate in order to be able to be alive to receive the gospel message, then obviously there's a large percentage of people who he's not. He's deliberately choosing. Yeah, I'm going to leave you in your natural state. I'm going to turn you over to your sins. Um, and I, that was, I saw that it, I did not have the compassionate response that you had. I was like, Oh yeah, people are morons. You know, <laughs> it's just, you know, they chose stupidity. So, um, but God has graciously chosen some to wake up. I want to really emphasize, like this is pastor Brad or I would neither of us have any desire to pan any reformed people that we see them as brothers and sisters in the Lord, any reformed leaders. Like this is just our personal journey and, and, you know, things that we've had to wrestle with. And like we said, you know, there are things that we both appreciate very much about reformed culture and things that we learned when we were reformed. We're just trying to share our experiences and, and, and our journey through this, I, I think that for me, one of the benefits that I received when I was reformed, when we were attending a reformed church, um, is I learned kind of um, salvation history preaching of, you know, how to understand the whole Bible mm-hmm. and to understand how all of the stories in the Bible tell the story of our salvation. I have to say, as growing up as a Baptist, I never heard that. I heard a lot of uh, book studies or topical sermons, but I never heard the Bible preached from the angle of like the whole overarching story of the Bible. I'm wondering for you, like what did you see as being a benefit that you received when you were reformed? Sure. I think that was one. When you start talking about really the, the meta narrative of scripture, I learned that inside reform circles. Um, although it's been way more developed now outside of my predestinarian leanings, you know, now that I'm no longer predestinarian. Um, but yeah, I mean, going through and saying, uh, you know, look at, look at the story of Joseph and Joseph was a type of Jesus who mm-hmm. was the fulfillment. He was the anti-type. And like, I learned those kinds of things in reform theology and seeing that thread uh, throughout all of scripture and the entire, you know, it's a bunch of stories, but it's really one story. Um, that regard for just, again, I will, I will push back to the sola scriptura of the five solas, right? Um, the scripture alone, scripture alone, right? Is, uh, if you're going to be about scripture alone, then you're going to dive into the whole thing and understand the, the full story that God is seeking to tell. And so, and that was, I got that, that I got that from reformed, uh, theology and, that's one of the things I was dialoguing with our church about different denominations. Uh, I was not dialoguing. I was monologuing. I was preaching on Sunday uh, about denominationalism and talking about how you can go to different denominations because they kind of have their, their pet doctrine or doctrines. And for me, the, the things that I got from the reform crowd, both Baptistic or Presbyterian, um, or even, you know, some of the other reformed Anglican tribes even, uh, was this just appreciation for scripture, for all of scripture, for the whole counsel of God. And, uh, and to this day, I'm still, I, I treasure 
that was the two things that I got was really the, the biblical theology, <laughs> uh, meta narrative, whole counsel of God, and then also a trust in, in God's sovereignty. Yeah, but I would, I would define that a little differently these days. Um, I think another thing I learned when I was reformed is I learned a deep appreciation for presuppositional apologetics. I yep. went through a whole Greg Bonson phase. Uh, and uh, I went through I, I even dipped into like, theonomy and trying to understand what that was all about and mm -hmm. you know and I, I i work at a ministry that is more of an evidential approach uh apologetics ministry but i learned how i've learned over the years how to ha keep both both systems both frameworks and so when i'm sharing my faith mm -hmm. if i need to shift to a presuppositional method i can do that and sometimes yeah. i shift to an evidential method but that deep understanding of presuppositional apologetics was something I learned while I was reformed. And if you've never watched Greg Bonson's uh, debate with uh, Dr. Stein, it's a, it's a textbook case on how to use presuppositional apologetics. It's, it's wonderful. Oh, and it's a smackdown, man. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting going to having gone to a denominational school, the way they presented Van Til, uh, I was not, Calvinistic, I think at the time, uh, but they presented Van Til and it was like, oh, and then this guy thinks this, right? And, but when I started and I started interacting uh, with Apologia Studios and, and Jeff Durbin and mm -hmm. started watching him use presuppositional apologetics, and then I figured out who Greg Bonson was. And then I figured out outside of Baptist circles uh, who Van Til was. And I was like, this stuff is great, right? This, yeah. is, this has an application, man. This can really help some people uh, answer to legitimate questions that they have. And, um, I, I thought that I loved that. Uh, and the theonomy thing, man. And yeah, I, uh, that and partial preterist approaches. Oh, yeah. all, that all, all, all that stuff. I was into all of those things. Oh, it, uh, it's yeah. shot. I, I am sharpened and I, I would share, I would just absolutely reiterate what you have said. I have very good friends that are that that hold a predestinarian position i call them and i'm like hey how do you deal with this and uh we they're they're friends they are brothers and sisters and they are resources but it was a much bigger dividing line for me when i was reformed or predestinarian than it is now now yeah. it's like oh you're you're reformed that's awesome yeah uh, let's go reach some people and make disciples you yeah. know and, and let's study the scriptures together I was a jerk for Jesus. Like, well, let's one, talk one about things. that because okay. there, that is the, I think the dark side of what I'm going to call reformed culture. And yeah. I've, I've made this reference on, on my channel before. So let's, let's have a conversation about it because I think in my experience, and I'm only going to speak for Southern California, I haven't been to reformed churches and any other part of the country. So I don't know what they're like in Michigan. So Michigan don't write to me, but sure. in, in Southern California, in the churches that we were interacting with, there was definitely a culture of evangelicals are kind of stupid. We were told this pretty regularly from the pulpit that and it was the, in the strong, my husband can correct me because I want to be accurate and fair but the sure. strong insinuation was that people outside of the reformed tradition were, I don't want to say they had a half gospel, but they had kind of an inadequate gospel. They, and they, they didn't have it completely correct. 
And there was a lot of hesitancy to enter into partnerships and ministry with non-reformed people. Uh, and, and there was a dark part of the church culture of, you know, um, not to question the doctrine, you know, it's like, well, we, we would go to sit in classes. And if you tried to ask a question, it was like, well, Calvin says, Calvin says this, Calvin says that. And I started calling it the Calvin says club, you know, because it was it, the answers you know, were sometimes from scripture, but often Calvin was exposited more or Burkhoff than, than scripture. So that, that was my experience in, in Southern California. I'm wondering if, you know, what your experiences were in, in reform circles. My experience was not, I did not have people naming various Calvinistic or reformed theologians because it took me doing that one time, right? I did that one time and someone was like, well, I follow Jesus, not men. And I was like, got it. And so um, I would labor to try to master the concepts from scripture. What happened with me was I would read whoever you want, right? Van Til or Bonson or, you know, whoever. Um, and they would say hard things because the scripture says hard things. <laughs> and then I would say, those things. And I wouldn't say, you know, Calvin says, I'd say, you know, John 6, 44 says this or whatever, right? Whatever your, your topic was. Uh, and then people would be like, no, that's whatever, right? Like I preached on, on Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 and really kind of the election, total depravity. You know, I preached the tulip, man. I did it regularly and people would fight back. And my response, yours was much more gracious than mine was, right? The way that you just articulated that mine was just, you're emotional and uneducated. Like you're, you're a slave to your emotions and you're borderline illiterate. So, um, and that was really, that was really, that's part of the fleshly pre-Christ Brad that was heavily academic. Um, but what my doctrinal understanding did was it gave me permission to let that loose. Yeah. Okay. And I want to be super clear, super duper clear that not, not all Calvinists or predestinarians are that way. There's actually a large percentage that are like, I can't, I, I'm one of the chosen and they become so sweet and humble by that. Uh, I just wasn't that I, I went to the condescending, um, harsh, oh, uh, divisive, I think is the right word. Um, really just kind of arrogant. It was, it was arrogance that was in my heart and that doctrinal, that mental piece gave the green light for that to come out of me. Right. And I'm not, again, not, I'm not painting all reformed right. culture with that brush, but that's what it was for me. I, I was, um, there were some beautiful things that it that it did in my life, uh, and then it it gave me permission to allow really some ugliness and arrogance and pride in my heart to to come out. Did you see other evangelicals as sort of compromising yes. or inadequate? I, I know that that's something unequivocally. That, yes. Yeah, that's something I yes. really struggled with. Is like, well, I don't know you know, if they really have the gospel right, I don't know if I want to support this ministry or this person because they only preach like half the gospel was sort of the the thought in my mind. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I never got to the point. I was in a conversation one time with um, with some other competent ministry folks, and uh, a gentleman said, "You know, I don't, I don't believe people that aren't Calvinist are saved because they've got the gospel wrong and they're adding works, which is the whole thing." Well, it's not the whole thing, right? It's one of the major tenets that that the reform crowd is trying to avoid is meritorious salvation, right? right. Is that I earn my salvation. And so this gentleman made the comment of, I believe that people who aren't reformed believe that they are cooperating with God in their salvation. Therefore, they're adding works to their salvation. Therefore, they are under Paul's uh, condemnation that he presents in Galatians. Therefore, they are anathema. They are not saved. I never got there. I was never there on a, if you're not reformed, you're not saved. That, that never sat right with me. Um, but while I was reformed, while I was predestinarian, I, again, this is me specifically was like, yeah, you don't have the gospel fully right. Um, and like I said, it's, for me, it was a lot of emotion. It's like, you just aren't hardcore enough to be able to let God be God and yeah. go against your emotion. Right. And so that's just really where I was coming from was like, if you don't agree with this, it's probably because you're enslaved to your emotions. And then that just so resonates with me. I mean, I think that I, I very much had that uh, a similar viewpoint, but I think I see my husband nodding his head over here that we met some people in our journey in reformed circles that were like that, that they, they did have a position that if you were not reformed, you are probably not a Christian and you are probably under the anathema of Galatians one. And, um, and, and we were regularly discipled from the pulpit to think in disparaging ways about our brothers and sisters who were going to the Baptist churches or the non-denominational churches. And it, they just didn't really take the Bible seriously. They weren't willing to let God be God. They were kind of slaves to their emotions they were caught up in emotional Christianity. And if you really wanted to take the Bible seriously, then you really needed to be sitting here with us at, at the Reformed yeah. Church. And this is how we were regularly discipled. Now, during this time, were you a pastor um, yeah. after, after you left yeah. seminary? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got to do this was all very public. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, yeah, so I, I did a year in seminary down in Fort Worth, Texas, and then I got into vocational ministry, and I finished seminary distance um, while I was, um, while I was pastoring, I was full-time vocational ministry, so yeah, I got to do this, I got to do this up in front of people, started testing it out on middle schoolers and high schoolers who, you know, didn't have the, the skill set um, to kind of hang with me there. And then I started bringing it to adults who um, I, I was able to present in humorous ways that uh, in the humor kind of distracted from, you know, or softened this very um, challenging position, you know, this very challenging thing, but I would have adults that would come up and they'd be like, Hey, I need to talk to you about that. Or, Hey, can we, are you saying that is, I guess I am. Uh, and I would tell people, I was like, Hey, listen, if you're like, I'd, I'd be preaching. I was like, Hey, if this doesn't upset you, you're, you're probably not hearing me correctly. Hmm. And uh, I would. So you were totally with okay with people getting upset about that. 
they were predestined, man. That's right. It's, that's right. So now did, did, did that affect how you hired staff people? Did oh, you yeah. look for people that were reformed? Did you modify your church doctrinal statement? Like what was the impact in your church as you were preaching this? Yeah. Uh, the impact was like, largely it was okay. At least on the surface, you know, we did not, I would hire. So to answer your hiring question, I would only hire uh, people that held to a reformed soteriology. Uh, there were other doctrines. I had other, I had other stuff that I mixed in, but yeah, I would only hire someone uh, with that understanding of soteriology. Uh, and for your listeners, that's the doctrine of salvation or the theology of salvation. You'll hear people say soteriology. That's what that is. Um, and so, um, yeah, uh, only that never changed um, bylaws or church documents. I have a pretty low view of church documents anyway. <laughs> it's just like, oh, that's a thing that you have to give to the IRS. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I never am amended that. I would be cognizant of who was leading what group and where I would recommend newcomers to the church to go. So, if I would, I would puppet master a little bit who, if you came to our church, uh, not our church now, no, our church now is, is new, but back in the day, um, if you came to our church and I noticed potential or I really, you know, whatever, I would, I would try to get you connected with the right, um, you know, uh, whatever we call them, home team leaders, or I forgot what we call them, community group, whatever, your small groups, your small group leaders, um, you know, our, everyone on staff was reformed and, um, so that yeah, was, just, least, that was kind of the just, come from that everyone was, that was, you know, in the lurking in the background of the church, even if it wasn't on paper. Yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. did people leave your church when you started talking about this? Like when you came there, were, were some people upset or, um, did you convert some of them to re reform theology? Sure. Well, I didn't roll out. So in the interview process uh, at the church where I became a lead pastor, we need to say this is 2012. Okay. And then I was with this church for three and a half years. And then I was out of vocational ministry for two years. And that was where I took everything before God and, and said, change it, whatever you want. It can be method, message, mission, doctrine. I, I don't care. It's all on the table. You just picked it, I just, and I brought it before God, and that there was that. So in the 2012-2016 uh, ministry run as a lead pastor, as my first um, my my first lead pastorate, uh, I, in the interview process, I told people, I said like, "Hey, I'm reformed," but they didn't know, right? Because hiring committees are filled with just people who love Jesus and they love the Bible, but they generally don't have the doctrinal wherewithal to understand what you're dealing with, right? With any candidate. Yeah. Okay. So I was interviewed and in the interview process, I told them, I was like, there was a guy, there was one guy who was dialed in, but people dismissed him. And I was, he was like, who are your favorite authors? And I was like, John Piper, Mark Driscoll, Wayne Grudem, J.I. Packer, you know, all these people. And he's like, all those are, guys are reformed. Are you reformed? Yes, absolutely. And he tried to warn everybody in this Southern Baptist church that was not reformed uh, of like, hey, this is what this is. And uh, nobody heard him uh, because I was winsome, right? <laughs> I was winsome. And um, 
So, yeah. And, uh, and then I started teaching and I didn't teach really reformed uh, any sort of like hardcore. They, they were Baptists, so they were already uh, all about, um, oh, what does Baptist world call perseverance of the saints? Um, like eternal security? Yeah, eternal security, right? So that's yeah. the Baptist verbiage for perseverance of the saints, right? And so we were already there. So I would preach on the P of the tulip, right? And then I could teach on total depravity, but as long as you didn't start saying, you know, limited, limited atonement. atonement. Yeah. And I didn't start teaching on really irresistible grace or limited atonement. That's the I and the L of tulip. Yeah. Right? Wait, or the U, sorry. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, Pauline, yeah. whatever it was. Sorry, it's been it's been a minute, and so it's getting fuzzy. Um yeah, uh, I didn't start preaching on those things until about three years in. And at that point, I had the reputation in the church and people were coming to the church and new people were coming to the church that I had the reputation of being a Bible person. I was a Bible person. And so therefore, when I started teaching it from the pulpit, it was like, oh, this must be biblical because Brad is biblical. Like that was my reputation. I wasn't compassionate. I wasn't loving. I wasn't gracious or kind, but I was biblical. And so if I'm saying it, it must be right from the scriptures. So yeah, some people left. Uh, and then some people were like, man, never understood that. But if that's what the Bible says, I accept it. And that's kind of where people fell. And there were small numbers uh, of people who left. And then there was another segment of the population that was like, we totally disagree with you, but we love you um, and believe that you're seeking the Lord and the scriptures. So we're on despite this. Um, and then there was another set that was like, whatever <laughs> whatever the bible says we're fine so well i think what you raised there though is it, I, it resonates with me that uh this idea of orthodoxy and orthopraxy you know sure. that we're going to have right doctrine i i think that in my experience reformed people god bless them they really are passionate about having right doctrine but they can at times engage in orthopraxy of kind of not being very caring about people and, and not loving people well. And, you know, as Christians, we want to strive for doctrinal fidelity and loving people well, that, that the loving people well is an expression of our good doctrine. And I think that for me and my husband, that was one of the things that, that eventually started taking us away from the reformed culture was that we just saw a pattern in the reformed culture that people didn't treat each other well. And that there was this, this, like, it's sort of okay to, to be unloving, unkind, ungracious, impatient. All of those things are okay when I would call them works of the flesh, but that was okay as long as you had right doctrine. And I remember vividly um, Bob and I driving home one Sunday after church and he and I having a conversation about this. And we kind of both knew like, I'm not sure we're going to do this for very much longer. I'm not sure we're going to keep going down this path. That was one of the issues that started bringing us away. The other thing for my, my husband, God bless him. It was, was, the evangelism piece. I mean, 
when we both grew up in conservative Baptist churches that were very um, financially committed to evangelism and missions and the reformed churches that we would attend just consistently were like, they didn't go out sharing their faith. They didn't, they didn't support missionaries. And even though they would tell you verbally, well, you know, missions is still important. Preaching the gospel is still important. They never did it. And Bob just, I think, you know, God bless him in his leadership as, as a, as a young husband and, and father, he was just like, we're, we're not doing this anymore and guiding our family away from that and not raising our kids in that. So those were kind of two things that for me came up that caused us to start moving away from the reformed tradition. I'm wondering what that was for you. Sure. So for me, and I, I want to draw a distinction for your, for your listeners, for people that are trying to sort this out and everybody's story is different, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, it was neither the lack of kindness nor the evangelism. And I'll give you two stories on that real quick. Uh, I realized that I had become a jerk for Jesus. And I was listening to some training from Matt Chandler. And this was probably 2013, 2014. And for those of your, those who are unfamiliar, Matt Chandler is a very, very gifted, very competent pastor of a Southern Baptist church. Uh, and he is reformed. And he lit up pastors who were jerks for Jesus, right? Who were the kind of like hostile, harsh. So he was reformed and he was just calling us to repentance. I was standing in my kitchen. I was standing in my kitchen. I was washing dishes. And I remember just like conviction, right? I was, because I was, I was reformed and he was reformed. And over this podcast, like God is rebuking me through this other reformed pastor about my harshness okay and so i think this is super important um that your listeners hear that the reason to re to walk away from reform theology is not because of the harshness because you can have very compassionate loving and evangelistic um calvinists right mm -hmm. so that being said matt chandler's church is one of the ones that reaches a ton of people so does um uh Who's the guy in New York, right? The the who's oh, who's New York guy? Tim Keller. That guy, Tim Keller, yeah. reaches a lot of people, right? Um, for us, when I was a reform pastor, when our church was running four fifty to five hundred ish, uh, we baptized fifty people in a year. Which, and somebody told me in church growth world one time that ten percent of your population that means you're doing a good job reaching lost people. And so, even though I was reformed. Um, I was being rebuked for being harsh by the reformed crowd. And then I was, uh, we were, and this isn't bragging, this is kind of speaking to the point that you're talking about. We were still reaching new believers. Hmm. Um, so we were doing those things. The thing that I would uh, want anyone listening to, to your channel, to your podcast to hear is for me, it was exegesis. The thing that did it, and that means, um, if they don't know that word, that's, um, taking out of the scriptures rather than reading things into the scriptures. So mm -hmm. we have lenses or baggage or filters or whatever, and we read things into the scriptures. Um, the, the way that I frame this for people was that the reformed approach to sola scriptura and sound exegesis um, and just this love for the scriptures gave me the tools to no longer be reformed. It was exegesis of Ephesians 1, right? It was not 
harshness. It wasn't lack of evangelism for me, right? I totally understand your story that gets you on, on your path. For me, it was, I've misunderstood Ephesians 1. Yeah. Wow. Have I misunderstood Romans 9? Did I misunderstand John 6? Did I misunderstand John 1? Did I misunderstand John 3? Did I misunderstand John 10? Right? A lot of John, right? So it was, for me, it was cycling back through when I was not preaching and when I didn't have any pressure to be anything, right? My paycheck was not dependent on anything doctrinal that I came before the Lord and it was exegetical for me. So am, am I, I, I want to, the thing that you'll get attacked on and the thing that I'll get attacked on because oh, you're going to sure. post this and I'm going to get emailed because of this, right? People find me on Facebook and tell me how horrible I am. Um, is going to be, you just walked away from the Bible because of emotion or right. because you misunderstood evangelism, right? And I want to be very clear. It was neither of those. I have evidence to the contrary of those charges. And uh, for me, it was exegetical. Right? Yeah. It was. And I think for me that that part of my journey came later. Like, yeah. like we left what I call, this is where I differentiate between reformed theology and reformed culture. My husband and I left reformed culture first because of the evangelism and the what I yeah. saw as being kind of toxic non-Christian attitudes. But we were still reformed in our theology privately, but we were yeah. attending an evangelical church. But I still thought these ideas, I still held to these concepts as a framework. My movement away from reformed theology was kind of decoupled from it was sort of a two-part process yeah. for me and it's the same it was going back to these scriptures uh there were some other events in my life that sent me back to the scriptures to restudy a lot of things and then i realized like oh wait there there's some things here that i've missed and mm -hmm. i think that you know going through that journey in my 40s Versus when I was in my mid twenties, when I went into reformed theology and then coming out of it in my early forties, you know, I was more mature and I was more mature in my understanding of the scriptures and my, my skills in exegesis. And, you know, yeah, I was rethinking. I think um, for me, a lot of it came from re studying Romans nine and realizing like, Oh, I I've made some mistakes here ex exegetically. So wow. yeah, that's, that's a really good clarification. Yeah. I think, you know, it's really interesting. And I would, I, this is a, is it okay if I, I kind of like surface something sure, that I thought yeah. of while you were, you mentioned that you went into this in your twenties and so did I. And I think there's something that is true that does need to be addressed in the non-reformed community. And I think in our twenties, our you tend to be, tend, not always, but tend to be idealistic, right? And so you come in and you say, I want the hardcore faith and I want a robust intellectual faith and I'm willing to accept whatever, right? Yeah. And one of the things that I did witness in my 20s in non-event or non-reformed church culture was um, really kind of a lack of seriousness, mm -hmm. a lack of seriousness for the for the scriptures, a lack of devotion for sound exegesis and a uh, lack of um, kind of boldness. I loved the boldness in the reform mm -hmm. camp. Um, and so I think those are real issues that do need to be addressed. Um, 
but it was interesting. You said you mentioned that you went in in your 20s, and I did too. And I think a lot of folks do that. They get there in college, you know, because you can sit around and argue about these things until yeah. four in the morning at the dorm, right? And uh, and you can kind of do this sort of thing. And that's a, that's a real issue. And there's and kind of a you know, I don't want to generalize or stereotype phases of life, but if you were to stereotype your 20s, very idealistic at that mm -hmm. point. And so I think looking at the deficiencies in the non-reform, in many non-reformed churches, let me say it that way, um, can, can push someone that way. So, so, so how would you characterize your beliefs now? Are you oh like some kind of free will Baptist? Like what, what are you, uh, you know, uh, like what bucket do you put yourself issue, in? issue, man? Um, I'm a total mutt at this point. Uh, we deliberately, we, so we've started a church that is truly non-denominational. I mean, we're not, we're not closet Baptist, closet, you know, assemblies of God, closet anything. We're just totally unaffiliated. Um, and we started this church now. Uh, it, yeah. And it's, I, I still hold, uh, several of kind of the doctrinal positions that I, that I studied out while I was reformed. Um, we are, we are Baptistic, I guess. Um, so, we so what we you mean by that, I think is like that you hold to believers baptism as opposed to baby baptism. Uh, correct. Yes, that's, yeah. that is what I mean by that. Yeah. So yeah. you must be a content believer prior to um, prior to baptism. Mm -hmm. um, and so now there are people in our church who don't hold that position. And this is interesting. So this is really interesting about the way that we structured the church. And I'll have to let you know if this becomes a huge dumpster fire or a train wreck. But so far, it's going well. So the way that we have structured our church is we are united around uh, deity of Christ and exclusivity of Christ. We are united around knowing, knowing Jesus. We are united around, um, the inerrancy and inspiration and authority of God's word. And after that, um, it's really kind of, I mean, we're, we're united around, uh, Trinity kind of Orthodox three and one. Um, after that, so sort of Nicene Creed plus the doctrine of inerrancy and inspiration and authority of scripture. Yeah. And the goal there, what I have told people, and there's things I've told them, I was like, it's going to be a case by case basis. If you roll up with some sort of crazy thing, like you don't get time to sort that out. You're just, you're just out. <laughs> like, um, you know, just, just craziness, right? If, if you roll in and it's like, I believe there are multiple ways to God. Okay. Well, you can be, engaged in church community but you're not leading stuff you're not getting titles right? right you can serve and we set up and tear down where a you know small church plant that sets up and tears down um you can stack some chairs you know <laughs> you can do that but what we want to give people is i want to give people a biblically a bible loving community that has that 10 years that i took for myself I, I think it is, um, you know, what I'm prepared to give an account to Jesus for is it took me 10 years mm -hmm. and it's wrong of me to turn around and be like, you can't, you can't have 10 years. Right. And I had, like I said, I had all the resources. I had the education, I had logos, I had the tools, I had the, the time, all of that. 
And for me to turn around and be like, you can only be part of the church if you land here, I, I, I can't answer to Jesus for that. Now, I have very strong convictions on things because I've been able to have time on that. And I will um, sit down with people and I'll say, hey, some people say this, I land here, here are my reasons, here are strengths and weaknesses, and you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so that's the way that we structured the church. And so far, it hasn't blown up in our faces. So very interesting. I think for me, I've kind of shifted to a somewhat similar approach. Um, I'm very rooted and grounded in the Nicene Creed. I have a very high view of the authority, inspiration, and inerrancy of scripture. I'm also somewhat charismatic leaning now um, and believing yeah. in the, the, all the gifts. Uh, I'm very much I like your expression. I'm, I call it being eclectic. You call it being a mutt. I, I, but I really yes. give deference to um, what has have Christians historically believed about X, Y, Z. So when I'm in a conundrum about, you know, certain issues, I will go back before the Reformation. And mm -hmm. I try to mm -hmm. focus. I've kind of adopted approach of Dr. Tom Oden, who was a theologian um, in the kind of 80s, 90s, early 2000s of looking at the first 300 years of the church. What did they believe? And using that as kind of some guardrails for um, how I approach doing theology. But it's it's been an interesting journey because when I was reformed, we talked about the apostles, Augustine, and then Luther. And it was almost like nothing <laughs> almost happened in between yeah. those. And, you know, maybe we would touch on Athanasius or, or that kind of thing, but it was, it was very light. And so the way that I've sort of reconstituted my theological framework is those first 300 years of the church and um, giving deference to that. So interesting, interesting to sort of compare notes here of uh, how we've, how we've journeyed out of this. I'm right there with you, man. I'll go back kind of, kind of pre, uh, pre Constantine, right? Yeah. What did the early church do? What were the letters that were flying around? Mm -hmm. What does that teach about, you know, things like Baptist or uh, baptism and how do they do that? Like we're, we're kind of having some of that conversation in our, in our community right now. Well, I'm thanks right for, for talking to me. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for sharing your story and just being in the risk with me. Like I said at the sure. top, we don't know each other, but I think this went really well. And hopefully people got some encouragement um, that, you know, sometimes we have to have room for the journey and for the Lord to, to help us understand the scriptures in deeper ways. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it, Pastor. Oh, well, thank you so much, Chris, for having me on. And thanks for uh, thanks for serving the church and kind of pointing people to precision and in, in interpreting God's word. So yeah, well, uh, I, I try. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, you know what? I bet the people that are signing on are hungry for more. And yes. so even if you even if they disagree and you disrupt them enough that they um, that they put aside distractions and chase after the Lord through his revelation, through word, uh, yes. through his word. I, I love what you're doing. So oh, thank, thank you, you so much for having thank me. Thank you so on. much. Okay, we're back. We're live. All right. Some good, vigorous action on the chat. Lots of comments, uh, lots of things happening there. So we're going to go out and see some of the comments. Um, I was waiting all stream for somebody to show up and tell me I wasn't a real Calvinist. Uh, and um, sure enough, <laughs> on the YouTube, 
someone says, I didn't really understand Calvinism. I can assure you, I understood Calvinism as I was a Calvinist for 15 years. Uh, I converted other people to Calvinism. I uh, taught taught the framework uh, when I would teach theology. I was highly conversant and highly persuasive. I was sort of a Calvinistic apologist. So I can assure you, I knew all the passages. I knew all the arguments. I, I was a real card-carrying Calvinist. If there was such a card, I had the card. So, um, yeah, let's go back out um, to the comments on Facebook. All right. What changed my mind? Well, I talked a little bit about that toward the end. Um, and like I said, it was sort of a two-part journey for me. It was uh, first I came out of the culture of, of reformed churches. And again, many of you are like, well, I've never experienced, I'm reformed. I've never experienced this condescending attitude you're talking about. That's great. Great for you. I'm only relaying what I experienced in the churches where I was. And as you can see in the comments, there are many people who have experienced their interactions with reformed slash Calvinistic people that have experienced them that way. So I don't think my experience is completely anomalous or peculiar, but if you haven't experienced that, that's, that's great. Um, so my first step was kind of, I, I went away from reformed culture, but I still held to the theology for the most part. Like I said, in the interview, uh, my husband and I went back to the Baptist church uh, where I grew up. And um, that was great. But internally, we were still pretty Calvinistic. I think that um, it was just a long process out of it. And um, kind of, I think that what it really came down to for me um, in one of the, the issues that... Um, for me, always kind of bothered me, but I didn't know how to articulate it, was that the fact that there had to be regeneration uh, before salvation, that I, that I wasn't capable when I would go out and preach the gospel to people, they had to get regenerated before they could choose Christ. That was always a little peculiar to me because um, that wasn't, uh, that would be something that would follow philosophically from the biblical text, but there wasn't exactly a verse. And there was just so many straightforward verses where Jesus would say, you know, believe on me. And so the fact that reformed people turn belief into a work, um, that ultimately kind of was what I, I just, I'm just not persuaded anymore that, that this is biblical. I just became less and less persuaded that the reformed framework was the correct theological framework to put on top of scripture, that it was a accurate reflection of what scripture taught. So that's my best answer to that. All right, let's go back out to the comments here. Yeah. This comment about Mark Driscoll. I saw this, um, in some of the reports about him being abusive to his staff, you know, look back in the day, I loved Mark Driscoll. 
I listened to a lot of Mark Driscoll sermons. Now, there were some things I didn't agree with him about, and I thought sometimes he could be kind of crass. But he also was a very talented uh, teacher, Bible teacher, and could convey complex theological ideas in a, in a way that common people could understand. And I really appreciated that. And I got a lot of ideas for, about teaching from him. But yeah, I think that um, he's often used as an example of, of kind of the, the negative side of reformed culture. And um, that's very, um, you know, it was a, just a very sad situation. I've heard, oh, Amy, this is a good comment. I've heard the American gospel documentaries had a reform bent to them. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. They're presenting a very reformed view. They're, they're interviewing mostly reformed thinkers. Would you say that these teachers are simply charismatic and not false gospel teachers? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that's a tough one. That's a more complicated question than I want to get into here, but I, I can say that the reformed, um, the American gospel is definitely presenting in popularized version of aspects of reformed theology that the filmmakers are reformed. Uh, I would say reformed Baptist and, and coming at things from that perspective. I wonder if God leads us to certain theologies to accomplish our sanctification. That could be, Oh, we lost it. We can't scroll down. Uh, I would love to hear teaching on your understanding of election. Now I'll think about that. Um, what was the author you mentioned? Tom Odin is uh, a theologian. He is a, um, I would call him a classical Methodist, not a liberal Methodist. I really appreciate Dr. Odin's approach. Uh, is she taking questions? Yes, I'm taking questions. I'm here. <laughs> Did you uh, meet resistance as a woman wanting to teach theology in reformed churches? Oh yeah, there was no place for me in reformed churches. <laughs> I didn't do any teaching. I didn't do anything when I was reformed. Uh, I just attended. Um, I was fairly invisible. <laughs> um, yeah, there was no place for me there. And I didn't even try to ask because they knew me. They knew who I was. They knew my background. They knew everything about me. And they were, they were quite intentional in letting me know that there was no place for that gift there. And I was willing to go along with that for the sake of what I considered at the time to be sound doctrine. Is it okay to be at a place of just not yet knowing what you think about this issue? Absolutely, Alicia. There are so many issues that I'm still thinking through. Of my age, in my 50s, absolutely, it's okay. Um, the Lord works with us, and I'm always studying the scriptures and and trying to get a more excellent understanding of things. I think in my 20s, you know, I just had such a zeal to, to think like, I want to know all the answers. And there was a framework there to tell me all the answers. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's been a long journey, but absolutely, it is okay to not know. Have you had charismatic experiences that convinced you of your continuation of stance? Yes. And that is a whole other story. Part of my story of, yes, I used to be a mostly a cessationist and I had some situations happen um, where it changed my mind. Yes. That's a whole other part of the, of my journey. Um, Melissa says the other part of my comment was that before I believed in predestination, I was so proud. I felt that I had believed in God. So what was wrong with other people? And I'm going to tell you, Melissa, I, 
appreciate the candor of that comment. I struggled with that same arrogance. I really felt like, you know, I, I believed in, and, um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I don't know if my brother's on the stream. I, I saw him earlier that maybe he was watching on the Facebook stream. So some of you aren't going to like this and that's fine. But uh, I'm very close with my brother and my brother is a member of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And if y'all start saying stuff about LDS people, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have Monique go on there and hide all your comments because it's just. That's not the point of this conversation. We're not having that conversation right now. But my my brother and I are very, very close. And I remember distinctly several years ago, we were sitting at lunch. And this is when I was still reformed. And my brother asked me, so here I am in what I would conceive of being an evangelistic situation. And my brother and I are very candid with each other. Like, we both know that we have a very different um, religious strategy in our lives. And... Um, we both try to convince each other, uh, of, of, um, our positions and we love each other and we're very close. Like there's my husband in my life. He's the man in my life. The number two man in my life is my brother. And, um, so we're sitting there at lunch one day and he says to me, so why is it that you think that I am not safe? In, in your scheme of things. And I said, well, because God didn't predestine you. That was the moment when I realized I don't actually believe this anymore because I was in a real life evangelism situation. And I just told the number two man in my life that the reason he, he hadn't yet come to faith in Christ was because God didn't predestine it. I realized in that moment, this is not a good system for evangelism. And I realized I don't believe this anymore. And so for me, there had been a long journey of coming out of it and restudying scripture. But for me, that was the moment where I was just like, I, I have to like, let this go. And um, that was a difficult moment for me. And I've never talked to Clark about that, but that was a changing moment for me of like, yeah, I, I don't believe this anymore. So I don't know, just, just being honest about, about, um, you know, that, that part of the journey. Okay. Any other questions? Um, I'm familiar with these teaching. I've been safe for 30 years. I've loved believers in both camps. I'm okay with not coming to a conclusion as of yet. That's great, Alicia. I, I'm glad for that. Wow. That had to be so hard. I'm holding my breath. Well, she's talking about her brother. Yeah, so was I. Uh, yes, like the man saying, my dad just wasn't chosen. I understand. When you talk to Reformed, I think, people now, how do you start a discussion on their doctrine? Like you want to present your positions now. Um, It's not really something I talk about too much with others. Um, If it comes up, I'll just kind of ask them questions about what they believe and how they arrived there. And then I'll kind of maybe, depending on how open they are, maybe present some alternative questions. Have you ever thought about the passage from this point of view? Do you think that's evident that there are different degrees of believing in predestination? I don't feel, I haven't felt that pressure in a PCA churches I've been in. 
my perception of PCA churches is that they are not as into the Reformed framework as other streams of Reformed um, theology. Some streams are more into it than others. Like in my experience, the Orthodox Presbyterian tend to be very committed and proud of being Reformed. The United Reformed tend to be that way, at least in the experience of the people I've interacted with. Whereas in the PCA, the Reformed theology is there, but it's a little bit more in the background. So I think it can vary depending on what stream you're in. Um, as for me now, like the most I'm, I would say about, you know, my position now is, like I said in the interview, um, you know, I kind of use this idea of, you know, what has the church historically believed, especially um, in the first 300 years. I use that sort of as a guiding feature. Um, obviously, scripture is my strong foundation. I believe in the inerrancy and authority of scripture. Um, and if I were to identify myself now, you know, I'm very eclectic. I, I do believe in the continuation of the gifts, but I, I also still like a good liturgy. You know, if I'm if I really want to participate in the liturgy, I'll probably go to like uh, Orthodox Anglican Church. Um, I still struggle with the baptism of babies issue. Um, but yet there is a lot of historical precedent for that. So I struggle with that. I struggle with the question about the ordination of women. I used to not believe in it. Then I believed in it. Now I'm kind of like, I don't think I actually believe in this anymore. I'm not really sure. Um, so, you know, there's things that I'm still processing and learning and growing and in all of that stuff. So, that's me just being honest. And so when I get on here and I'm talking to you, I, if I don't know something, I'll lay out both the views, the pros and cons, and I'll, then I'll tell you, well, this is where I'm at right now. And I might, I might continue that journey and change, but um, very uh, firm on the historic Christian faith. And I hope you find it helpful. I guess that's all for now. Um, I'll see you in another couple of weeks. And um We'll do another live stream. So kind of pulling some things together. I hope you found this helpful and uh, that it kind of addresses some of the questions about where I'm coming from when I'm talking about theology and a little bit about my journey through those things. May God bless you and good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.